What do you think you need? And I mean like really need. There are all kinds of things that we say we need, but they're really just wants. We say things like, I really need to get the next iPhone, or I really need to get a new car, when in reality what we mean to say is we really want these things. We don't need them. Sometimes we'll say things like, I really need some space right now. I really need some peace and quiet. I I really need some rest. Maybe after a busy and stressful day at work. And we say this thinking that these are needs, when in fact they're really just strong desires. We think we need some time alone to rest and think, but really that's just a preference. It's something we like, but it's not something we must have. We We won't die or something like that, if we don't see one of these kinds of so-called needs fulfilled. They're just something we really, really want. People say things like, I really need some coffee right now. And listen, I know some of you think that you need coffee, but you won't die. Okay? (laughs) There's a grumble about that one. (laughs) You won't die. You might get a headache or something like that, but it's it's a want. It's not a need. What would you say you really need? What is something that you must have? Something that you cannot live without? Most people would say it's things like food and water. We need clothing to keep us warm. We need a dry place to sleep at night. These are things that we we need to survive. They are the bare essentials that we really need. Modern psychologists have even introduced a new category of perceived needs into the vernacular. They say that we have psychological needs, emotional needs. We need to be loved. We need to feel respected and accepted. We need to feel secure. These are all mental states that we must have in order to be mentally healthy. They are psychological needs, according to modern psychologists. What do you think? What is it that you truly need? That's the question that Jesus is going to answer for his disciples in our passage this morning, which is Matthew 14, verses 13 to 36. He's going to show them what they really need more than anything else. So if you haven't already done so, uh, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 14, verses 13 to 36. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus wrap up the kingdom parables by taking the disciples back to Nazareth so they could watch him be rejected in his hometown. Then last week, we saw that Herod now thinks that Jesus is the resurrected form of John the Baptist, whom he had put to death. The context here is really one of suffering and rejection. The the kingdom of heaven is under assault. It is suffering violence at the hands of violent men. And now this week, Matthew writes this. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and this day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Last week I mentioned that with the death of John the Baptist, we are now entering a new phase to Jesus' ministry. John was really the last of the Old Testament prophets. His role was to introduce Israel to the one who would establish the new covenant that God had long ago promised to the people of Israel. When John dies, that is a signal not only that the Old Testament will now soon draw to a close with the establishment of the new covenant, but but also that Israel's rejection of its Messiah is sealed, and that he and his disciples will now face increased hostility from this point forward in his ministry. This period of hostility opens with news that Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. If we're looking here at verse 13 in our passage, it starts by saying, Now when Jesus heard this, and that should draw us back to the very last thing that Jesus heard in the previous passage. Normally, that would take us back to the previous verse, verse 12, where it says that John's disciples took his body, John's body, buried it, and then reported this to Jesus. Verse 13 would then read like this, Now when Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist, that's the this, the death of John the Baptist. But remember, that all came, this report about John the Baptist's death, that all came at the end of a flashback, meaning that the news of John the Baptist's death was not the last thing that Jesus has heard about. John had died sometime earlier, and then John's disciples came and told Jesus. Then sometime after that, after they reported on the death of John, Herod heard of Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he has been raised from the dead. And Jesus has heard about this. 
And if you're wondering how Jesus would have known that Herod was saying this to his servants, Luke tells us in Luke 8 that by this point in his ministry, a woman by the name of Joanna, who was the, was the, the wife of Herod's household manager, she was one of Jesus' fo- uh, followers actually financing his ministry. So Jesus has already made some friendly connections in Herod's household. So, so John dies. John's disciples come and tell Jesus that John is dead. And then sometime after that, someone connected with Herod's household, probably Joanna herself, comes and tells Jesus that Herod is saying these things about him. Chronologically, that is the this that Jesus has heard about in verse 13. It goes all the way back to this news in verse 2 that Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist. This report is the very first sign of hostility that, that, of hostility that occurs in this phase of Jesus' ministry. It's not that Herod is expressing any hostility towards Jesus just yet. If anything, he's probably afraid of Jesus right now more than anything else. But at the same time, the conditions are ripe for this accelerated hostility to begin. After all, Jesus is not John the Baptist resurrected. At some point, Herod's going to figure that out. And what will happen then? After all, Jesus and John shared the exact same message. So if Herod put John to death, then what can Jesus expect? The same thing will happen to him as well. So when Jesus hears this report, it is a sign that the hostility against his ministry uh, that's going to break out, it's beginning. So how does Jesus respond to this news? What's the first thing on his docket in this post-John era? We see the answer in the very next phrase. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. This is Jesus' response. He withdraws. Matthew has already shown Jesus withdraw in the face of hostility once before, back in chapter 12. So it wouldn't seem, uh, it would seem reasonable, rather, that this same kind of thing is going on here. Jesus sees the handwriting on the wall with this report from Herod that he thinks that he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, and he knows what that means, and so he withdraws in order to avoid conflict. But he doesn't do this because he's scared. We should make this clear. In fact, the reason why Jesus avoids this conflict doesn't appear to have anything to do with himself whatsoever. No, Mark tells us in Mark 6 that that Jesus received this report about Herod while his disciples were on this mission across the Galilean countryside proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And when they get back, Jesus tells them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For, Mark explains, he says, many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. The idea is that the disciples have come back exhausted from this mission. And as they are rapidly moving through the cities and villages of Galilee, they're they're exhausting themselves. And about the time they come back, Jesus hears this report about Herod. And rather than to expose his tired disciples to the rigors that are about to unfold in the face of this hostility in and around Galilee, he withdraws with them in order to give them time to rest. I mean, you probably don't realize this, but but, but at this point in Matthew, we're only about a year away from the cross. 
The past 10 chapters of Matthew, that all occurred in the span of about two and a half years. And much of it centered in the city of Capernaum. The next 14 chapters will occur in the span of just one year. And during this year, Jesus and His disciples will almost be on the move constantly, traveling as far away as to the region of Tyre and Sidon, some 30 miles north of Capernaum, all the way down to Jerusalem, some 70 miles south of Capernaum. And they're going to do this, virtually all of this, on foot. This is what lies in store for Jesus and His disciples. Like Jesus told the scribe who tried to follow Him, the Son of Man has no place to rest His head. Hostility is breaking out. And as this happens, Jesus is going to be wandering, essentially homeless, as He moves from one place to the next. So this is the first move that Jesus makes in this new phase of His ministry. He understands that the heat in His ministry is about to turn up. Things are about to get hectic. And so His first move is to give His exhausted disciples a breather. He wants to give them rest before they begin this mad dash to the cross. He gets into a boat with His disciples. He retreats to a desolate place, to a place across the Jordan River and along the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, a place near the city of Bethsaida Julius, according to Luke 9. This is a region that is outside of the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. The disciples would be safe here. They should be able to rest a while here without any sort of provocation before they venture back into Galilee. But then in the second half of verse 13, we discover that by the time they arrive, there's already this crowd there waiting for them. Matthew doesn't really tell us how they managed to beat Jesus and his disciples uh, there, other than to say that they followed Jesus on foot. But the idea is that the crowds watch Jesus and his disciples sail away. And as they do, they see the general direction that they're headed in. And so they spread the word around, and, and people from all the surrounding towns and villages come streaming to the shoreline, traveling around the coast, kind of parallel to the boat, as it moves very slowly, very leisurely, to its destination. And so when the boat finally pulls into shore, there's already this huge crowd there waiting for Jesus and his disciples. In other words, the disciples' mission in Galilee was incredibly successful. Everyone was hearing about the power of Jesus. And now, already, there would be no rest. The sprint to the cross has already begun. So, what are the disciples to do in this situation? They're harassed. They're exhausted. How do they respond? How do they move forward? What is it that they truly need to endure this daunting mission that's being set before them? And that's what Jesus is about to show them. And He's going to do it in the form of two miracles which occur here uh, by the end of chapter 14. So let's go ahead and look at these together. The first miracle, of course is the feeding of the 5,000, which occurs between verses 13 and 21. In this miracle, Jesus pulls ashore, and He sees this great crowd there waiting for Him, and and the sick that they have brought to Him to heal, and He feels compassion. In fact, the word here is splachnizomai, and it means literally to be moved to one's bowels. It's kind of almost, uh, it sounds like a splachnizomai. It's moved to the bowels. This is where the Greeks believe that the emotions resided, in the gut. 
And the idea here is that Jesus was moved when he saw this crowd. Here's this group of Israelites who have been greatly uh, greatly afflicted by the effects of sin's curse. And they've had to travel all this way to see Jesus because of the actions of wicked men like Herod. But they've done it. They've come here to see Jesus. And they've come here because they believe that He can help them. Israel's king sees this. And he isn't troubled. He isn't disturbed that this crowd has ruined his plans for rest and refreshment. He doesn't get upset. Instead, he's moved with compassion for them. This is a severely afflicted people, a people who are themselves in need of rest. And so rather than turn them away, he welcomes them and he takes the time to heal their sick. As evening approaches, the disciples start to grow concerned. They see that it's starting to get late, and they're concerned that this crowd is going to be left there without anything to eat. And so they ask Jesus to dismiss the crowds so that they can go into the surrounding villages before nightfall. They say, verse 15, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages and and buy food for themselves. If you think about it, the implication is that they're actually interrupting Jesus. In the midst of this ministry, Jesus is healing the crowds. According to Mark and Luke, he's also teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. And he's he's doing this on into the evening. And so the disciples interrupt Jesus and tell him to dismiss the crowds so they can go and get something to eat. And to be be fair to the, the disciples, this is a noble thought. They're expressing the same kind of compassion for the crowds that Jesus is. They want the people to be cared for. They don't want them to go away hungry. They just don't realize what resources are presently available to them in the same way that Jesus does. And so they implore Jesus to end this meeting and send the crowds away. Jesus, of course, is not so easily deterred. Again, his compassion for this crowd is great. He doesn't want to dismiss the people. And so he tells the disciples, verse 16, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. And this is where the lesson of this first miracle really begins. The king is there before his people, wanting to extend his compassion to them. And this is expressed not only in his healing and his teaching, but in this command to his disciples to give them something to eat. In other words, Jesus has already expressed his compassion to the people personally by miraculously healing their diseases, and now he wants his disciples to extend his compassion for them, for him on his behalf by giving them something to eat. And this is important. Jesus involves his disciples in the, in the miracle that we're about to see here. This matters because in this miracle, Jesus is about to teach his disciples where the sufficiency for their ministry comes from. He's going to show them how they will have the power to do the kinds of things He's going to ask them to do in their upcoming mission. So Jesus tells His disciples, I don't want to send the crowds away. I want you to give them some food for Me so that they can stay. And the disciples don't know what to do. They say to Him, we only have five loaves here and two fish As we'll see at the end of this story, there are about 5,000 men here. And that's just the men. With women and children included, this is easily 
two or three times that amount. A multitude is, is larger, even larger than the city of Carthage is standing there before Jesus and his disciples. I mean, this is a crowd large enough to fill a pro basketball arena standing there before Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has told them to feed this massive crowd and the disciples are standing there looking at these five loaves. Which wouldn't have been like French bread loaves or something like that. These are more like buns. (coughs) Hamburger buns. The disciples are sitting there looking at these five loaves and these two fish and they're going, "Um, Jesus, how are we supposed to do that? I mean, this is all we've got. And this is the point. This is what Jesus wants. He wants the disciples to realize that they can't do what he's asking them to do. And he wants them to realize this so that he can teach them the lesson that comes next. In verse 18, Jesus tells the disciples to bring in the loaves and the fish. And then in verse 19, he orders the crowds to sit down on the grass, literally to recline, as Jews would have done in preparation for a meal. And he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing over the loaves and the fish. And to be clear, this isn't some kind of magical incantation that he mutters. Uh, This isn't even a prayer to God to perform the miracle that we're about to see unfold. He's simply giving thanks, as any person would before a meal. That's what John confirms for us in John 6. Jesus thanks God for the meal that they're about to eat. Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples. Matthew doesn't say anything about the fish, but the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus divided up these as well. And in a scene that really leaves a lot to the imagination... The disciples proceed to go and distribute this food to these thousands of people, and they all eat and are satisfied. Now, if you ask me what this action or what this event looked like in action, I'll have to tell you I really have no clue. None. I mean, there are these 12 baskets worth of bread at the end, and the the word here for basket is a a specific reference to a small kind of of wicker basket that people would use to carry provision for themselves on a journey. It makes sense that if each of the disciples had a basket, then Jesus could have put a little bit of food in each of the baskets, which would have then miraculously, uh, the food would have miraculously materialized in these baskets as the disciples went around and distributed the meal to the people. But it's not entirely clear. I mean, again, these these five loaves and the two fish, John tells us that they all came from one single boy who brought these things on his journey. So who's to say that there are even 12 baskets? There may just be one, which the disciples used to collect the 12 baskets worth of bread at the end. Who knows? I mean, none of the gospel writers describe how this food was multiplied. They just say it multiplied and it filled everyone and they were satisfied. And the word for satisfied here is corazzo. It means to be filled. In other words, they didn't just eat enough to satiate their hunger for a little while. It wasn't like they took a little bit of bread and go, oh, I'm good for you know, a couple hours. It means they were full. They were stuffed. Jesus provided more than enough food for all the people with these five loaves and two fish. In fact, by the time the disciples are done, there are still 12 baskets worth of food remaining. So there's even more left over than when Jesus started. 12 baskets, by the way, correspond to the number of disciples here in this passage. In other words, there's enough left over after the feeding of the 5,000. There's enough left over for the disciples who didn't have time to eat, remember? There's enough left over for these disciples to stuff themselves as well. 
So, not to read too much into this because in Matthew, because Matthew doesn't really stress this point, but Jesus withdraws because his disciples are too busy to even eat. And they're immediately greeted by this large crowd. They minister all day, and at the end of it, Jesus miraculously provides enough food, not only for these thousands of people, but for his worn-out entire disciples as well. I mean, if we were to stop right there, this would be a remarkable story with an incredibly powerful lesson for Jesus' disciples. Here Jesus asked them to do something they cannot do. He asked them to feed these thousands of people. And then after admitting to Jesus that they cannot do what He's asking, He then performs this supernatural feat that allows the disciples to do exactly what He wants them to do. The point here really should not be missed. Again, Jesus involves His disciples in this miracle. He doesn't just cause bread and fish to come raining down out of the heavens to feed the people Himself. He commands the disciples to feed the people they say they can't, and then He gives them the bread and the fish they need so that they can. Again, Jesus doesn't feed the people. The disciples do. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, and the disciples are the ones who distribute them in fulfillment of this command from Jesus. This is an incredibly powerful lesson for Jesus' disciples. Their sufficiency for the ministry in front of them comes directly from Jesus. They are going to do the things that Jesus is asking them to do by their own power. They're going to do it by His power. There are some significant illusions going on in this passage as well. For example, we've already seen Jesus perform a few different miracles that that mirrored miracles performed by the prophet Elisha in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The cleansing of the leper, followed immediately by the healing of the centurion's servant. These things mirrored Elisha's healing of the leprous Naaman. The raising of Jairus' daughter mirrored the resurrections performed by both Elijah and Elisha. This miracle, too, mirrors a miracle performed by Elisha. At the end of 2 Kings 4, Elisha takes... 20 loaves of barley and some fresh ears of grain, and he uses it to feed the 100 men who belonged to his prophetic guild. In that account, Elisha tells his servant to feed the prophets these barley loaves and grain, and the servant even replies, like the disciples. He says, how can I set this before 100 men? Elisha repeats the command, and by the time the story ends, it says, quote, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So Elisha multiplies the food to feed these men, just as Jesus multiplies the food to feed his men, and they both provide enough that there's even some left over. Now, of course, uh, the ratios are drastically different. You know, Elisha feeds 100 men with 20 loaves for a replication of like 5 to 1, whereas Jesus feeds 5,000 with just 5 loaves for a replication of more than 1,000 to 1, but otherwise the feats are essentially the same. So there's this illusion in this miracle. But the greater illusion, the one that Matthew doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time highlighting, in part because he doesn't have to, is the allusion to Moses and the Exodus. John brings this similarity out much stronger than Matthew does, even going so far as to tell his readers that Jesus performed this miracle, quote, when the Passover was at hand. 
During the Passover, God delivered His people from Egypt, and as He delivered them, He gave them manna from heaven. And it says in Exodus 16 that when the people gathered this manna, quote, they gathered some more and some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whomever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So there was this perfect amount of bread that was given to the people of Israel during that miracle. And you see the same going on here. There's really no waste. Even the extra that the disciples collect, this is sufficient to provide for them. Jesus provides an absolutely perfect amount of bread in this miracle, just as God had done with the manna in the wilderness. Of course, Jesus also multiplies not just the bread, but the fish as well, just as God gave meat to the people of Israel in the wilderness too. And speaking of the wilderness, by the way, Matthew says that Jesus performed this miracle in a desolate place. The word is actually eremos, and it's the same word that the Septuagint uses to translate the the Hebrew word for wilderness in the book of Exodus. Jesus performs this miracle in the Eremos, in the wilderness. This is the really strong connection. And in John's account, the people clearly perceive the significance of it all, even showing, even, even showing up to Jesus again the next day, demanding that He do the miracle again, saying, what sign do you do that we may believe and, and see you and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. That's what the crowd says the next day after this miracle. So this is the really dominant implication of this miracle. And this matters because God explains the purpose of the manna in Deuteronomy 8, which we read today for our call to worship. If you would, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Once again, that's Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8, God is reconstituting His covenant with the second generation of Israelites who had come out of Egypt. He's urging them to do and keep His commands as they enter into Canaan. Keep in mind, He's saying this to the generation of Israelites who watched their parents fall dead in the wilderness because they refused to obey the command of the Lord and enter into the promised land. And as God encourages them to keep His commands... He explains the purpose of the manna to them in chapter 8, saying, verses 1 through 3, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, and whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What was the purpose of the manna? It was to teach Israel that they depended upon God. God says it plainly right here. He used it to humble them and teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God brought forth this manna, this bread, that they did not know, nor did their fathers know. This stuff that they didn't even know existed. And He he brought it forth to teach them that God is the one who keeps them alive. It isn't the bread that gives them life. It is God. 
It is the one who makes the bread that gives them life. He is the source of their life, not the bread. And God taught them this lesson. He provided them this supernatural bread. He fed them with resources they didn't even know existed. Why? Why did He do this? So that they would be careful to do the command that God was giving them that day. He gave it to them so that they would be obedient to His command, realizing that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now I ask you, do you think that this lesson would have been an important lesson for Jesus' disciples to learn at this stage of their ministry? These harassed and worn out disciples, this small remnant of faithful believers, these twelve, listen, these twelve disciples who are about to constitute the very foundation of Jesus' church, these disciples who are being called to serve as God's messengers to the world, just as Israel was to be a kingdom of priests to the nations, these disciples who are facing off against Israel's religious leaders, who are facing off against the Herod Antipases of the world, just as their fathers had faced off against the Canaanites and the descendants of Anak who dwelled among them. Do you think this miracle with this comparison to the manna in the wilderness, do you think it would have been an important lesson for these disciples to learn at this stage of their ministry? Of course it was. I mean, this miracle was hugely significant for Jesus' disciples. They knew exactly what this miracle was teaching, and they held it in in incredibly high regard. This miracle teaches teaches the disciples that their greatest need is Jesus. He is the one who gives them the bread out of nowhere. He is the one who can enable them to do His will. What they truly need more than anything else is Him. This Old Testament message about the manna, it's being redirected towards Jesus. The disciples do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Jesus. This is a hugely significant point. For Jesus' disciples. In fact, of all the miracles that Jesus performed before His crucifixion, this is the only one, the only one that all four Gospel writers record. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record this miracle. You can't say that about any of the other miracles that Jesus performed. So again, this is a hugely important miracle for Jesus' disciples. This lesson left a significant imprint on every single one of them. They remembered and talked about what Jesus did here alongside the Sea of Galilee, just as the people of Israel rehearsed the events of the Passover and passed down that story to their children. And if we were to stop right here, if we were to stop right here, that would be enough to kind of process and think about for a while. The problem is that Matthew begins this very next verse with this word, immediately. Immediately, he says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The idea is that this next event happened right away. So really, if we're going to treat these accounts with integrity, we can't stop to breathe here. We have to keep pressing on. We can't stop to take this all in. In fact, if you notice here, Matthew doesn't tell us how the disciples reacted to this miracle just yet. And really, this is because the disciples 
doesn't seem that they even had time to react yet. They wouldn't have had time to process it at all. The miracle is completed, and before the disciples can even pause to consider what just happened, Jesus is telling them, get into the boat and go meet me on the other side. Really, we don't know how we should interpret this miracle yet. That's still developing. We're going to to see the disciples' reaction to these miracles in a few more verses at the end of this next miracle. And then we'll know how to interpret both of these events because they're all one story joined by this word immediately. So again, Jesus, he rushes the disciples into the boat right after this miracle has been performed. And, And this can seem like an odd reaction on Jesus' end. But John tells us that when the crowds witnessed this miracle, they said... This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, which is a reference to uh, this promise in Deuteronomy 18 where God said that He would send a prophet like Moses to the people. The people see this miracle and they understand it and they see Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise and they get ready to seize Jesus and to make Him king by force, John says. So actually this, this oddly kind of hostile situation breaks out In the wake of this miracle, so powerful was this sign that Jesus performed. And he tells his disciples to leave while he stays behind to defuse this situation and dismiss the crowds. And then comes the second miracle, the miracle that's going to tie all of this together for Jesus' disciples in a way that they could never have anticipated when they first set out from Capernaum to go to this desolate region. In verse 23, Jesus dismisses the crowds. Then he goes up the mountain to pray by, him, to, by himself to pray. He withdraws from the crowds once again, this time to spend time with his heavenly Father. And as it relates to the development of this story, the significance of this withdrawal is twofold. First, it continues this Exodus theme established by the feeding of the, the manna, the feeding of the 5,000. After Jesus multiplies the loaves... He ascends up onto the mountain to spend time with God, just as Moses ascended into the pillar of cloud on Mount Sinai. And second, it indicates that from the disciples' perspective, at this point in the story, Jesus is headed in the opposite direction. He dismisses them and they go, they, 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 they go out to sea and as they pull away from shore, they watch Him dismiss the crowds and then they see Him head up the mountain. He's not following them. He's going to spend some time alone by himself. By verse 24, the boat is now a long way from land. And Jesus is up on the mountain alone. John tells us that it was about three or four miles away from land, which isn't very far, considering that according to verse 25, this is now the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night started at three in the morning. So the disciples have rowed only three or four miles in maybe around eight hours. And that tells you how slow they're moving here. And yet the distance is still far enough away to separate Jesus from his disciples. So they're not terribly far, considering the amount of time, but it is far enough that they're separated from one another. Now the reason why the disciples haven't gone very far is stated in the second half of verse 24, where it says that the boat was being beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. Back in chapter 8, we saw Jesus encounter this terrible storm while crossing the Sea of Galilee. The boat was being swamped with water. The disciples believed they were about to drown. The picture here actually isn't quite as dramatic as that. 
None of the gospel writers indicate that the disciples believed their lives were in danger in any way here. There's just this incredibly strong headwind that is preventing them from getting to where they want to go. No doubt the water is incredibly choppy, as it says here. The boat's being beaten by the waves, but this doesn't appear to be a storm. And I say this because not only does Mark say that Jesus could see them on the water from the mountain, but also because the disciples can see Jesus approaching them on the water. So there's this strong headwind, but this isn't a storm exactly. The water is choppy, the wind is howling all around them, they're rowing with all their might, but it's not exactly a storm here. And then as they're rowing, verses 25 to 26, they see this figure approaching them on the water. Remember, John says that this all occurred when the time of the Passover was at hand. So there was either a full moon or nearly a full moon out at this time. The idea is that there was enough light for them to look and see out onto the water. Well, as the disciples are rowing against this headwind, they look out on the water and they see this shadowy figure approaching them under the the silvery light of the moon and it's walking on top of the water. They see this figure and they cry out. I would think the same thing. It's a ghost. (laughs) Right? And this remark is is incredibly important to understanding the point of this story. They they see this figure approaching in the water and they don't say, they don't say, hey, look, here comes Jesus. That's not their first reaction. Their first reaction is to say, a ghost. And this matters for a couple of reasons. Again, first, it matters because it tells us that they don't know who's approaching them right now. This is a mysterious figure. That matters because the rest of this story is going to be about discovering the identity of this mysterious figure who's approaching them. Contrary to what we're often told about this whole encounter that follows with Peter, the lesson of this miracle is not about how we need to to have more faith, kind of push ourselves forward, to believe more. That's not what this is about. This is about Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity is being revealed to His disciples through this miracle. That's the first reason why this exclamation matters. The second is because it it shows us, this reaction shows us just how little the disciples really know about Jesus at this time. Even though they left Jesus back in the same direction that this figure is coming from, they still don't perceive that this could be Him. In fact, in Mark's account, he even says that once the disciples discovered that this was Jesus, they were astounded, and he says, quote, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the significance of the feeding of the 5,000 was not yet understood by the disciples. And so they're not expecting Jesus. And yet, by the end of this account, they will discover that this is Jesus. And when that happens, they'll also perceive the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus is approaching, and they don't recognize Him. They don't think this could be Him. They think this is a ghost. They cry out in fear. They screamed in fear. That's actually another way you could translate this. I mean, there's this ghost approaching them, and think about it, they're trapped on this boat. And they can't paddle away. I mean, you can probably picture them like, you know, really starting to dig into the water now as they see this ghost approaching them on the water. And they're getting nowhere. This ghost just keeps coming closer and closer. So they're absolutely terrified, and they scream out in fear. Jesus sees this commotion erupt on the boat in verse 27. 
says, Immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He tells them to calm down. He says, guys, take it easy, it's just me. And now we get to the heart of the story. Peter says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Listen to that again. He says, Lord, if it is you, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Again, the whole point of what we're about to see here unfold relates not to Peter's faith per se, but to Jesus' identity. Peter still isn't sure who this is. He's certainly willing to find out who this is, and in the course of this story, he will find it out, but right now, he's still not entirely sure. He says, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So who exactly does Peter think this is right now? That's the question we really have to answer, because in a moment, Peter's going to falter in his faith, and the reason is because whoever he thinks this is right now, by the time he gets out on the water and begins to see the waves, he's going to doubt that it's really them. That's what's going to make him sink. He leaves the boat thinking, this is, and you can kind of fill in the blank, and as he sees the wind, he's going to think, it's not, and he'll lose faith and begin to sink in the water. So who does Peter think this is? The obvious answer is Jesus. After all, this figure is coming from the shoreline where Jesus fed the 5,000. When Jesus says, it is I, surely the disciples are supposed to recognize who that is, right? When he says, it's me, they're supposed to know who that is. Surely they know, they recognize Jesus' voice even. And they know that it's him. That's the, the easy answer. But I don't think it's as simple as that. I think Peter thinks this is Jesus. Does Peter, when he goes out there, does he think this is Jesus? Yes. But I don't think he believes it's just Jesus. After all, the disciples don't understand the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. They don't think Jesus, at least as they know Him, they don't think He's capable of this. It's interesting. Do you know who treads upon the waters in the Old Testament? You know who walks upon the waters? We read an example of of this earlier this morning during our scripture reading. Psalm 77, 16 to 20 says, When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. And then it says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led the people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Who's walking on the water in this passage? It's God. And that's not insignificant in relation to our passage. This passage speaks of God walking on the waters during the Exodus. During the Exodus. And that's the context for our passage as well. The feeding of the 5,000 was this clear reference to the Exodus. The disciples just witnessed that. So who might they think might be out there walking on the water if it's not a ghost? What's even more interesting is that when Jesus answers His disciples, once again He says, take courage, it is I. But do you know that when He says, it is I, the words there in the Greek are ego emi, which is literally, I am. 
When God says in the Old Testament, I am, this is how it's translated in the Greek, ego emi haon, I am that I am, I am the one who is. I think when Jesus says, take courage, it is I. Take courage, I am. He's pointing to his deity. And he's telling the disciples that the reason why they should not be afraid is not just because it's him, Jesus, but because he, Jesus, is also God. The one who treads upon the waters. So they shouldn't, what they're seeing shouldn't alarm them. This is expected behavior for one such as Jesus. So when Peter says back to Jesus, if it is you, I don't think he's saying to Jesus, if it is you and not a ghost, that issue's been resolved. He can hear Jesus' voice. He can see where Jesus is coming from. He knows that this is Jesus. That much is clear. When Peter answers, Lord, he's saying that to Jesus. But when he says, Lord, if it is you, literally, Lord, if you are, when he says this, he's saying, if you really are the one who treads upon the waters, if you really are the Lord, the one you're claiming to be right now, then command me to come to you. He knows this is Jesus. The thing he wants to know is if Jesus really does have the kind of authority that he's claiming in this moment. Is he just Jesus? Meaning, is he only a prophet that's here before Peter? Is this another Moses or Elisha figure? Or is it the Lord? There's one way to find out. Peter says, if you are, If you are the Lord, then command me to come to you. This will get down to the bottom of Jesus' authority. Is Jesus just a man who is being empowered by God to tread upon the waters? Or does he have this kind of authority in himself? There's one way to find out. Jesus, you command me to come to you, Peter says. This will demonstrate where Jesus' authority comes from. If Jesus can command Peter to come to enable Peter to walk upon the water, then it's clear that Jesus isn't just the conduit of divine authority. He's the actual source of it. That's why Peter makes this request. He wants to verify this claim that he's making as he walks across the water. And to be clear, this isn't a challenge from Peter. Peter isn't saying this to discredit Jesus. He's saying this because he wants to believe. He wants to know for certain. He's asking Jesus to demonstrate himself so that he can accept this claim. This is a request that is made with humility and faith. Jesus answers these kinds of requests consistently. And so in verse 29, he commands Peter to come. And Peter exits the boat and gets out on the water and he starts to walk to Jesus. This is amazing. I mean, Jesus' identity at this point is being confirmed. At this point, the realization should be happening that He is the one who treads upon the waters. He is the one who commands the winds and the seas. Or is He? In verse 30, Peter looks and he sees the wind. And suddenly, he's not so sure. It says that Peter saw the wind. You can't really see the wind. Right? But you can see the effects of the wind. That would appear to be what happens here. Peter looks down and he sees the, sees the waves that are being stirred up by this strong wind. And as he looks, he begins to doubt. 
I mean, walking on the water is a powerful display of authority over the created order. But does Jesus really have this power? After all, the wind is still blowing. So Peter looks down on the waves in this very unstable kind of surface, and he begins to wonder if Jesus really does have this kind of power. He starts to think that maybe Jesus isn't the source of this divine power, that he can't uphold Peter. And as Peter begins to think this, he begins to sink. And he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretches out his hand and grabs Peter and steadies him. Peter regains his footing. Again, not because of his faith, right? But because of Jesus' compassion and grace. Jesus steadies him completely by his own power. He makes Peter stand. And then he asks Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He asked Peter why he couldn't believe that he was the one he claimed to be. Why he couldn't believe that he had this kind of authority. After all, Peter had seen so many things already that pointed to this reality, including the feeding of the 5,000 that he just witnessed. Jesus had commanded Peter to come out of the boat, and Peter walked on water. Why wouldn't Peter have believed that Jesus was more than just a man? And then they walk to the boat, and they get in, And guess what happens? Even the wind, the very wind that caused Peter to doubt, this wind that they had been fighting with for several hours, even that ceases immediately. Jesus removes absolutely every cause for doubt in this story. He confirms again that no, He is the one that commands the wind and the sea. All authority rests on Him. And the disciples, they worship. They worship, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is what this miracle confirms. This is what the feeding of the 5,000 pointed to. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a conduit of divine power. He is the source of this power. He is more than just another Moses figure. He is the pillar of fire and cloud that goes out before the people to give them victory. And so the disciples worship. In verse 34, they land at Gennesaret. And when they do, the people bring out their sick to Jesus. And look at the way Peter or Matthew describes this here. He says that they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. In other words, the significance of these miracles is being confirmed over and over again. The people come out to Jesus to be healed, and all they have to do is touch his clothes, and they are healed. Again, divine power is resting on Jesus. This is not Moses interceding for the people of Israel, asking God to perform signs and wonders. This is God there among them, healing the people by His own divine prerogative. God is there among them. You know, the disciples don't quite understand the significance of all this just yet. They're still wrapping their minds around it all, but they're getting there. They're beginning to put it all together. And by the time Jesus is raised from the dead, it's going to all be clear. The significance of all these things is going to make a ton of sense. So what's the lesson of this account? Back in the feeding of the 5,000, we saw that the disciples' provision comes from Jesus. He made them sufficient for their ministry. He was their greatest need. Here in Jesus' crossing of the Sea of Galilee, we learn why. 
Why does Jesus make them sufficient for ministry? Why do they come to Him and ask Him to give them the resources they need to serve Him? Why do they need Jesus more than anything else? It isn't just because He's a great man. It's because He's God. It isn't just because He's a greater Moses. It's because He's the pillar of fire and cloud that led Moses and the people out of Egypt. He can literally... Think about this. Again, Jesus commanded them, go meet me on the other side. They go out there, they can't do it. They're rowing the boat, they can't do it. Jesus can literally stop the wind that is preventing them from rowing to shore in obedience to His command. So when, they're, when they grow tired on this mission, when they are discouraged, even when they are afraid, then they are to come to Jesus and ask Him to give them what they need. And again, that's not just because Jesus is strong, a great man, a great prophet. It's because He's God. They have no reason to fear any man, neither Herod or anyone else. And the reason is because God is on their side. When you look at these miracles together, which is the way that we're supposed to read them, this is the lesson that we're supposed to come away with. Jesus is forming this new community of disciples and He's teaching them what the kingdom will be like. He's showing them what it means to live under the administration of this new covenant. And at the very core of this new life is a recognition that Jesus is not just another man, but the object of their worship. The one even that the disciples pray to and depend on. The absolute centrality of Christ in the life of the disciple That is the lesson of these miracles. He is the pattern, the means, and the object of their worship. They are to render worship to Him, and through Him, and for Him. He is both the purpose of their life, and the means of it. He's not just a prophet that brings them into the kingdom, and introduces them to God. He is God. And the kingdom, it's about Him. He's more than a Savior. He is their Lord. In every sense of the word, He is their Lord. In short, these miracles teach the disciples that what they need more than anything else is Jesus. He is their greatest need. What they need more than anything else is not food or clothing or shelter or protection. What they need is Jesus because He is the source and provider of all these things. Jesus is the one who gives life, not bread. He is the one who will make them cross the sea, not their oars. What they need is Jesus. And it's the same for each and every disciple. Each and every disciple has been called to the same mission that these disciples have been called to. Each and every one is going to face the same obstacles, the same challenges. So if you're a believer in Christ, you're facing the exact same problems that these early disciples were facing. You have been called to share this Amazing message. You have this amazing and overwhelming mission in front of you, which is to glorify God through the proclamation of the gospel. You have been called to proclaim the grace and mercy of God to a lost and dying world. That is amazing to think about. I mean, you have been sent as ambassadors of Christ. Again, the one who treads upon the waters, the creator of heaven and earth. You have been sent as ambassadors of Him to proclaim words of eternal life. This is actually pretty mind-blowing when you think about that. This, the, the privilege of that position. 
That's an amazing calling. But it's also incredibly overwhelming. Because who am I to proclaim a message like this, right? Who is sufficient to handle such a great responsibility? In the world, they're not always going to like this message. And I'm timid and afraid. I lack the wisdom to know how to do this well. I lack the power to bring dead souls to life. I mean, I lack the power even to conquer the sin in my own life. I just keep falling back into it over and over again. So how am I going to go and act as an ambassador of Jesus? Again, who is sufficient for this task? And the answer, of course, is no one. No one is sufficient for this No one that is except for Jesus. Christian, if you're going to accomplish this task, this mission that Christ has set before you, then what you need more than anything else is Jesus. So often I hear people talk about this whole account of Jesus walking on the water and Peter coming out of the boat to meet him. and They talk about it like the point of this story is Peter. It's it's his faith that we're supposed to learn about here. Peter failed to keep his eyes on Jesus. And if he had just stayed fixed on Jesus, then Jesus could have held him up as if Jesus was in any way dependent upon Peter to hold him up above the water. That's not the point of this story at all. That if we just discipline ourselves to believe hard enough, then Jesus can take care of our troubles. That's actually like the exact opposite point of this story. The point of this story is not to go away saying, I must be better, I must believe harder, and if I do, then Jesus can help me. The point is to realize that Jesus, Jesus, He is better, much better than you can possibly imagine. He is greater and more glorious and more powerful and good than you can possibly imagine. So bring your infirmities to Him. Don't say, okay, Jesus, I'll try harder, I'll work harder to to believe so that you can do your work through me. Say, Jesus, I am so weak. But you are strong. Will you go before me to win the victory? Because you alone are sufficient for this task. You don't have the resources to do what Jesus is asking you to do. But Jesus does. So go to him and ask him to lead the way. This is the lesson of the 5,000. This is the lesson of Jesus' journey across the water. The question now, of course, is how? How do we do this? What does this look like? How does the Christian do this? And that's what we'll discuss in greater detail tonight at 6 o'clock. You have some questions in your bulletin. Look those over. Talk those over this afternoon. And then tonight at 6, we'll explore the implications of this miracle a little bit deeper. Until then, let's close in prayer. Let's pray.